Hello everybody, this is Kim C and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. I am a university fiction teacher by day and a Stephen King podcaster by night, where I specialize in analyzing the less popular, what I would call the underrated titles, collecting dust on the shelf. This is the show where we pluck them out, pick them up, and crack them open. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 102, Billy Summers. Oh my god, everybody. Okay, let's do this. All right. So we are saying farewell to summer with Billy Summers, as I mentioned at the end of part three, Wizard and Glass. My friend Matt Robinson from King Size recommended that I make haste to read Billy Summers because there would be some beautiful stuff in there waiting for me. And my own father, who I love to pieces, kept texting me throughout the week, have you started Billy Summers yet? You should read Billy Summers. So of course, as you all know, this is the show where we try to focus on King's underrated titles. These are the ones in the shadows, the ones that don't get a lot of film adaptations or any for that matter, the ones that are really just sitting on the shelf waiting to be explored a little more than the popular ones that get all the attention, you know which ones they are. That's our MO, that's what we do. However, every now and again, with immense persuasion, we're gonna pick up a newer King novel that hasn't quite yet been labeled underrated. And I have a feeling as Billy Summers gains momentum, it's gotta be one of the Kings. Guys, this has gotta be gold on top of the mountain. So I just finished it within the last 24 hours. I know that's a bit unwise, Typically, if I'm a little emotional, I've found (laughs) if you guys have participated in any of my Dark Tower coverage, sometimes it's not a great idea for me to record immediately after finishing a book. It's recommended I give it a couple hours, days, maybe even a week or two. However, I cannot with this one. Ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness. I cannot. I could not wait to be with you all today. I could not wait to talk about this novel with you because I am blown away. I am shaken to my soul. I am absolutely smashed to smithereens. And all I could say, folks, is I believe Billy Summers may be a top five king title for me. As you guys know, I only have my top nine Stephen King novels. I specifically have left one spot in the gold section. I have four gold novels. You can jump back to that episode and hear the nine, but I have left some room because I haven't felt I've found that contender yet. This could be it. I know it's a little unwise to make such a declaration, so we will continue to say the jury's still out. However, this novel, everyone, has 
romanced me, body and soul, has inspired me. And let's just say, last night when I was finishing it on my couch, I started to cry. We are towards the end, right? It is getting very emotional. It has been an emotional book throughout. But at the very end, this was no ordinary cry, my guys. This was a wailing sob. In the last 10 or so pages of this book, I was ugly crying, everyone. Ugly crying. A wounded animal cry came out of me. And I can count on both hands how many times I've cried like that. It's usually when someone has died, and that's natural to grieve as hard as that. I remember vividly crying like that on the plane back from Australia. It was 2012. I had to go home and finish grad school, and I had just spent two months in Melbourne loving life, and I did not want to leave. I was brokenhearted to go, and I was sobbing on my Qantas flight. I was crying so hard that I had to get the airplane blanket and put it over my mouth because I was making that much noise. I was devastated. I cried like that over this novel, everyone. I am still in shock. And as I was wailing, I was like, what's going on? What happened? What happened? (laughs) Like, What kind of voodoo magic has taken over my heart? Granted, we just came off a very emotional novel with Wizard and Glass. However, I didn't shed any tears over Wizard and Glass. It was more frustration and anger and uh, the sadness of one's soul, I would say. But not a tear was shed. I think I might have gone a little misty. Maybe. Uh, yeah. On the Charyu tree? Yeah, for sure. I also, if you guys remember from last year, my Green Mile coverage, where I did all six parts of the Green Mile, I was very, very emotional by the time we got to the last installment. I was pretty weepy, and a little bit of it trickled into the broadcast, and that's okay. But here's the thing, I had already seen the Green Mile, I knew how it ended. I knew that John Coffey is just that powerful, pure miracle of nature that is nothing but benevolent, and I knew he was just a lamb to the slaughter. I knew this. It still hurt, and I still shed a lot of tears. But there was not the wailing (laughs) that happened to me from this novel, ladies and gentlemen. I I can't explain it. I, I... I can't explain it other than to connect the dots and position the pieces of what I have observed within this text to show the immense and brilliant strength of this story. This is masterful, ladies and gentlemen. This is brilliance on another level, and it brought me to a wailing sob, uh, the ugly cry everyone, where you just are 
scream crying almost. It's the scream cry where the injustice and the devastation is so immense and heavy, you can't do anything but feel the pain and let out a scream cry. And my face was flooded with tears. I'm covered in snot. It was abysmal, everyone. Like, I, this was a state. Thankfully, no one was around. I was by myself. I could just let myself go to that extreme state and I relished it. I relished it, everyone. I was shocked. I'm in awe. I have the hugest book hangover today. I am thinking about these characters and these moments. Everybody, this is a game changer. So it is a 2021 title. It is still fresh from the oven and I just sit here in awe, everyone, because Mr. Stephen King is going to turn 75 years old on September 21st of this year, meaning he was 73, 74 when this was being composed, and I just, I am so immensely grateful that this man is still with us and that his devotion to the craft allows him to continue writing stories, but also that his brilliance and his sort of obedience to his own storytelling inspiration just allows him to create these powerful, meaningful, game-changing works of art that we get to encounter and celebrate and discuss and analyze. And because of these stories, we form friendships and relationships and we just see the world differently. I This is a state, ladies and gentlemen. I am in it, <laughs> but I'm just in awe. He is uh, in his 70s, and he is as sharp and as brilliant as anyone half his age, and he keeps getting better. He keeps getting better, and how is this possible, everyone? He keeps getting better. The work is getting better. He's getting older and it's getting better. I, I Usually, as it goes, we see this with musicians a lot. You know, they play their hits and it sounds okay, but the ravages of time have kind of made it not as great as the original and but we still love them and we just kind of go with it. But no, not with Steve. It's stronger and better and more alive and more vibrant and soaked in meaningful brilliance. I can't even, you guys. I just am, I, I'm in shock. I am speechless. I am in awe of celebrating this writer's ability this novelist power and I can't I just I'm in a state of ugh. okay <laughs> so that is the introductory gush to let you know I liked the book this is a 10 out of 10 this is a five star and a five star this is this is an amazing novel for me everyone and I picked it up probably two weeks ago with the intention of, okay, this is Steve with his crime hat, going into it like I would with 
Mr. Mercedes or The Outsider. Unknown, expecting a little bit of paranormal, unsure if I was even going to like it. And then I started to notice early on that this novel was going to be incredibly special because sometimes when I open up a King book and we all, well, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but let's just say sometimes you sit down with the King book and it doesn't take long. It could be the first page, less than five pages, less than 10 pages, and you are swept away. You are carried off your feet. You are not thinking about your life, your problems, your obligations, your emails, your bills. You are gone. He has taken you by the hand. You are with the characters. You are in the setting. You are with the narrator. You are gone, right? That hasn't happened to me for a minute with King. This year, I've kind of had a more academic lens on and I spent a large amount of time with the Dark Tower, specifically Wizard and Glass. That was stylistically very different. The lore is very heavy. There's lots to pay attention to. So I was interacting with it like I would a school textbook where it's a little bit more analysis. It's a lot more attention given and I'm not really carried away, I am studying it, right? So I'm paying strict attention to really as much as I can. And even then, my emotions can get the best of me and I miss stuff. But when I picked up Billy Summers, guys, 10 pages in, maybe even less, and I started to notice the next day how much I wanted to go back and read it, how much... I was thinking about it, and even though I was absolutely exhausted, ready to go to sleep, I would pick up my hardcover and turn on my lamp and tell myself, okay, I could read for 15 minutes. And then of course that would become 45 minutes, that would become an hour, and that's what Billy Summers was. I was carried away, and I relish that feeling in a King novel. I adore it. It is sheer brilliance, and Billy Summers did that for me, everyone. So right when I recognize that feeling and that urgency to get back to the text, my spidey sense definitely goes off, and I think to myself, okay, I think we have a special one. Something is happening here. Something is cooking, and I like it because All of the stories that that has happened are typically my most favorite King titles. That happened to me with Joyland. That happened to me with Revival. That happened to me with Duma Key. Uh, So many. My favorite short stories. When I dive in and the current takes me and the narration just seizes me by sometimes the throat or sometimes it's a gentle hand on my shoulder beckoning me near but I'm not in control the narration has got me the characters are pulling me I am in the king zone I am in the beam I'm there and that's what Billy Summers did and I am so incredibly grateful to Matt from King Size and my dad and Matt from Tower Junkies who all sang this novel's praises and suggested that I read it sooner rather than later. I am so glad I did. This is an incredible Stephen King novel, everyone, and we're going to talk about 
why I think it's a winner and we'll see. I think I'm gonna let the emotions settle on this one. I feel very strongly about it now, but we're going to let the rest of the year play out and by the time we get to our end of the year Stephen King episode, the best of Underrated King 2022, we will see if Billy Summers is powerful enough to crack the top five or if we kind of need to keep it in the stew pot a little bit more unknown but i am gonna try to have some friends come on the show and talk more about it because i'm obsessed guys this is a love at first read i have so many questions so many ideas i want to explore i am smitten for this title so i think that's enough gushing now i would like to break down what this episode is going to entail. So for this one, it's going to be very traditional, very similar to our usual format when it comes to novel analyses. Our first section is going to be exploring what is working and all the strengths that really make this story wonderful. And then we will head into our character section because this is a character book, everybody. If you are one of those constant readers, or if you are a brand new constant reader in the making, perhaps new to the Stephen King pool, and you really like character development, this is the novel for you. We will also transition to our questions area, potential criticisms. I'm sure there are a few. There are. We'll talk about them. They're extremely minor, as well as my final thoughts. That is what this episode is going to be about. I am going to talk about spoilers, ladies and gentlemen. I have to. This is an emotional book, and I think I need to release some of the pressure and discuss some final character outcomes. Ergo, I really, really, really want you to save this until after you've read or listened to Billy Summers, everyone. This text is so incredibly special. It is... It is so wonderful. I do not want to ruin anything for you, so please make sure you have recently read or listened to Billy Summers. I also recommend, as you know, we here on the Year of Underrated Stephen King are huge proponents of reading along with listening. I had the audiobook and I also had the American hardcover right in front of me. I read along and listened to it, and it is awesome if you're easily distracted. If you (laughs) struggle with ADHD and you need something to help you focus, hearing the language and reading the language, it's really, really going to be an immersive experience for you. You're going to remember so much more of the text. And I highly recommend getting a physical copy of the text because we have some really cool textual art, specifically with punctuation. If you're a grammar fan, King does a brilliant job of writing from different levels of intelligence, perhaps different ages, and you see that portrayed in the text. It's very similar to the novel Misery, which I highly recommend getting a physical copy of the text. It's absolutely essential because there's so much text art and cool stuff inside that novel. You need to see it with your eyes. Yes, the audiobooks are amazing, but you need the physical text to accompany it. There's, I mean, 
mean, when something's in italics, everyone, it's huge. You need to see the italics. You need to see them. It's gonna really open up the story for you. And there's some awesome textual art inside. So please make sure you get your hands on a physical copy. All right, let us transition and let's get this show on the road. Once more, spoilers ahead. Enter with caution. I gotta do it. It's gonna happen, so watch out. Let's head into a quick summary before we get started on our next section. Billy Summers is a 40-something veteran of the Iraq War who used his skills as a sniper to create a lucrative career for himself in the criminal underworld. Although he is a killer for hire, Billy won't take just any job. He only takes out those he deems as bad, those who deserve to pay the ultimate price. When crime boss Nick Majerian reaches out with the job that will leave Billy a millionaire, he decides to grab it in the hopes that this one will be the last time, and after it's done, he can forge a life all his own. But of course, what's sought after never comes easy. Billy's plan and Nick's plan crash into each other when the hand of fate comes knocking. All right, friends. That is super vague, but I am gonna reveal things slowly. (laughs) So let's now explore what this episode has to offer everyone. It may make us an offer we can't refuse. So take a look into that scope and get your sights set on the next section, which is what is working inside the novel Billy Summers and the immense strength found within this 2021 King novel. I'll see you there. jarheads welcome to the what's working section slash strengths found inside the 2021 novel billy summers oh my goodness all right so we're gonna kick it off with the first of three categories yeah i think you have three maybe four but we're gonna break them down and get going here so one of the reasons that i absolutely adore billy summers and I don't know if I mentioned it in the introduction, but I am so moved by this novel, everyone, that I I need to find a way to teach it to my students. 
It's a hefty one. This is a 500 pager, but I am ready to go to the dean and ask him to give me an entire semester for this book. That's how obsessed I am. That's how brilliant I feel it is. We're going to talk about why that is. But I started when I mentioned earlier how this thing romanced me right from the get-go, swept me off my feet. And I want to say in the first hundred pages of the novel, I started to think about classic novels, specifically On the Road and the things they carried. So this first category I want to share with everybody is called Channeling the Masculine Classics. So here we go. So as I was reading Billy Summers, that first hundred pages, as I mentioned, I couldn't get On the Road out of my head. And this was problematic because I didn't really care for On the Road. Allow me to explain further. However, I think the reason I was thinking about On the Road is because it's a very masculine text. We're going to discuss why in just a moment, but that novel in particular has always appeared in the discussion realm via men. I was thinking about On the Road because Billy Summers is also a very masculine text. We have a lot of masculinity in this novel, but here's where it's awesome and here's where it works. It is not alienating like On the Road is. So in order to help you guys digest that, if you haven't read On the Road, let's break it down. Let's do a little background info. So On the Road was written by Jack Kerouac in 1957. He wrote the entire thing in three weeks on a long ream of paper, which is very cool when I think about it. And, and there is a lot to like about the text in terms of how it amplified the counterculture and the beat generation. And the whole thing is a huge statement. It's a cultural statement, and it does deserve to be read. But the reason I bring it up is because in my life, ladies and gentlemen, in high school, in undergrad, in graduate school, and now my teaching career, every single boy, every boy, young man, male, gentleman, in a two-inch radius, non-stop raves about the novel On the Road. All the high school boys I had crushes on, all my Ethan Hawks brooding in the corner, they were reading On the Road. All the college boys who were way out of my league, On the Road. And now, the young men I teach, some of them older men I teach, they still rave about it. I've met several of them who have direct quotes from the novel tattooed on them. It's just, to this day, It's always on the road, on the road, on the road. And so when I finally read the book post-grad school in my classics book club I had for a little while, I got it. I understood why it resonated with the male audience or those identifying with masculine tendencies. I get it. I absolutely got it after I finished the novel. The story is about freedom and adventure and giving a huge finger to the society that wants men to settle down, get married, be a provider, slave away at a nine-to-five. I get that part about it. And there is a freedom aspect to it that really speaks to a male soul. 
in my experience. Some ladies like it too, but I just haven't met as many. I've never really encountered a lot of women or those identifying as feminine who enjoy this book. It speaks to a man's soul. It says to them, be free, party, do what you want, screw whoever you want, go where you want. Nothing is stopping you. Nothing is holding you back. Even if you're broke, you'll scrounge and figure it out. You'll scratch and get glad. But where the book takes a huge turn, and the reason why I don't like it, is because it glamorizes men to become, and there's no other way to put this, pardon my French, but to become pieces of shit and have zero consequences for their actions. There's just no other way to sugarcoat it, ladies and gentlemen. The main characters, we've got Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty, I think. Dean? Sal and Dean, for sure. They, they're, they're garbage. I mean, yeah, they're wild, free, devil may care, reckless abandon, but Dean, he gets caught up in this really risky gay for pay situation where there's a lot of manipulation and crime. With both of them, there's drug addiction and drunkenness and endless self-centered, selfish whining. Not one of them thinks about anyone else or contributes to their communities at all or uses their talents for good. They are basically wasting their lives in whorehouses and bars and yeah, they're seeing the country and they're traveling and it's exciting the first time it happens in the novel, but by the eighth or ninth whorehouse, everyone, it's a bit sad, okay? Like, by the tenth house of ill repute, I am pitying them. I, I don't admire them at all. I pity their choices and their decisions. I don't like them. I want to go home. I don't want to be friends with these gentlemen. I want to get as far away from them as possible. And I don't feel a lot of people, specifically gentlemen, focus on the sad aspects of the novel. The aspects of the novel that really scream to the reader, the party is over, right? So once more, I just haven't met a lot of women who have liked this story, who were drawn to the text, because a lot of the women, especially one of the main characters of Mary Lou, they really get shat on by these individuals. And yeah, but once more, lots of men, those who are identifying or exploring the masculine, that's who loves this story. So let's get back on track, because while I was making my way through Billy Summers, within the first hundred pages, I had this sort of eureka shout out loud moment and i i thought to myself screw on the road seriously screw that book because billy summers can be the new on the road i think this has the chops to be the new masculine beacon because it's so wonderful and it ticks so many boxes that i feel speak to that masculine side but yet it doesn't alienate female readership like On the Road does. It is brilliant in that way. Here are the reasons why, everyone. Here are the reasons. I think I have about five or six. This is why I believe Billy Summers has what it takes to be the new On the Road. It absolutely has the power to knock it off the shelf. So firstly, this is a novel about war and loss and how death and losing friends via global conflict, it weighs down on a soul and it transforms it into something different. And especially with the character of Billy, it's not necessarily a 
bad different per se because some people discover talents and qualities that they never knew they had until trauma and shock and terror bring it out. We never know who we truly are until the chips are down and the pressure is on, and that's this story, a million percent. Number two, this is a road trip story, guys. On the road, quite literally, channels that wandering around the country in a car. So does this story! My goodness, everyone, we are all over the place all over the continental U.S. We begin in the Deep South, we head up to New England, we head to the Midwest, the West Coast, there and back again. We go back to the South, back to New England, upstate New York. We are all over the map, guys. This is such a jaunty story. Lots of time behind the wheel, on the road in this book. It is a road trip story. It captures that spirit, most definitely. Number three, without revealing too much about characters, we're gonna do that quite a bit in our next section. Billy is an outlaw. He is a renegade antagonist with a moral high ground. The reader adores him, but society wouldn't. That's attractive, specifically to a masculine audience, right? Number four, Billy is heroic and morally just. He plays judge, jury, and executioner, but based on his character, we don't blame him. We kind of like it as the reader. We like that street justice, that Robin Hood slash Zorro thing, but he's far less public about it. Number five, he's got money and skill. He lives life by his rules and his timing. He's in control of the game and he's so incredibly intelligent. Oh my God, Billy is so smart. And so that's attractive, guys. We are tapping into that very cool uh, Marlboro Man situation with the character of Billy Summers. And then lastly, well, we got two more. Number six, he can have non-committal sex, but he's also capable of love. He can do both. He can have both. I think dudes are generally into that. The prospect of both. The James Bond effect, right? He can do both. And lastly, number seven, Billy's talented. This is a novel about blossoming talent, untouched potential. He's exploring his creativity, his own abilities, and he's having a cathartic experience through art and writing, and he's reaching out to people to connect with what he's creating. He's like engaging in his own built-in therapy. He doesn't even realize it. It is so great, right? So those are the seven things I jotted down that really, I feel, channel that masculine power in a text and it's such a pleasure to be a part of and it doesn't alienate a female reader like on the road does because it really really does much like Hemingway alienates me <laughs> forevermore it's such a joy to be a part of in that space and I believe it can be the new on the road I think this needs to be the new masculine go-to novel I think young men would love this. I think older men would love this. I think it speaks to a male soul. It is a masculine space, but yet as a female, someone who identifies as hyper feminine, I'm just a little peach princess inside of a <laughs> regular woman's body. I'm a forever six-year-old Disney girl over here at times. I loved it. 
I loved being in this space. It didn't alienate me. It didn't gross me out. It drew me in gently. So it could be the new on the road. So before I talk about the next masculine classic that is absolutely essential reading for all of you, I want to introduce it the way King introduces it, and that is with a small excerpt of the text. So I'm going to grab my American hardcover. I am headed over to page 140, and I'm going to read a little slice of what I feel really inspired King in regards to the spirit of this book. So I actually talk about this text in my episode of Hearts in Atlantis, if you want to jump back there. But let's take a look at page 140. Through most of August, Billy slept well. He drifted off to sleep, thinking of nothing except what he would write the following day. There were only a few dreams of Fallujah and the houses with the green garbage bags fluttering from the palm trees in their courtyards. How had they gotten up there? Why were they up there? It was no longer his story, it was Benji's story now. Those two things had begun to drift apart, and that was all right. He had once watched an interview with Tim O'Brien on YouTube, O'Brien talking about the things they carried. He said fiction wasn't the truth, it was the way to the truth, and Billy can now understand that, especially when it came to writing about war, and wasn't that what his story was mostly about? Kissing in that ruined Mercedes with Robin McGuire, aka Ronnie Gibbons, had only been a truce. Most of the rest was fighting. Tonight, with summer past and autumn on the come, he lies awake, troubled. Not by a gun in the golf bag, he's thinking about the job he's agreed to do with the gun. As a rule, he never goes further than the two basics, taking the shot and getting out of dodge. This time it's different, and not just because it's the last time he plans to take a life for pay, it's different because it has a smell. The way Hoff's breath had a smell when he snared Billy in that clumsy and unexpected embrace. Alright, so that's a little slice of Steve introducing one of the best, if not the best, meditations on war and loss ever, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. So this is an interconnected short story collection about the Vietnam War. It was published in 1990, and Tim O'Brien is an actual veteran of Vietnam. So these are incredibly personal, if not largely autobiographical stories colored by his own experience over there. And the whole thing, this is the word of the day, carries a lot of uh, versimilitude. <laughs> it is heralded by King himself and many others, myself included. Guys, it's the best war story ever. Ever. Ever in the history of ever. Ladies and gentlemen, you really need to read this book at some point in your life. It's pretty short, and if you get the audiobook, it's read by Brian Cranston. It is a stupendous performance, of course, because it's Brian Cranston, but it is legit incredible and poetic and deep and accessible, and you need to read it. And I think about the characters in those stories. I know I will continue to think about those men for the rest of my life. And when I was talking about Hearts in Atlantis, which is a Vietnam-centered book, it just breaks me. I think I can do well with most wars in terms of stomaching them, tolerating them, even though they're all pretty horrifying. But there's something epically terrible and dark about Vietnam. And 
King uses Tim O'Brien's story collection as the cornerstone for this novel, guys. So if you have read The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, this novel, Billy Summers, will resonate deeper. You really will see that he is channeling the spirit of Tim O'Brien and his writing power. And oh my gosh, it's, it's just magical. So I actually have a, another scene I am going to read. It is exceptionally powerful. So throughout the text, I am noticing King mention Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, and then I'm remembering my memories of The Things They Carried, specifically the way certain friends were lost in the dark soaking wet monstrous jungle these young boys who had no idea what they were signing up for and many of them were just cracked out on drugs because why wouldn't you be if you were in that hellscape and it's pretty horrific when you realize that they came home and were treated like garbage and had the mental illnesses that we now associate with combat hadn't yet been identified and treated with the reverence and care that we need to grant them. So it's incredibly powerful. So if you have an idea about Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, uh, it just, the fact that he uses it and he's inspired by it is, it's so wonderful, guys. And we see that a lot with King's work, right? In the novel Revival, we see Steve working with Frankenstein. In the novel Bag of Bones, he was utilizing Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. He does this a lot. And so if you have a connection to the text that he is pulling from, it just enhances the work so much more. And so what we have with Billy is he is healing himself through the truth, through the pain of memory and it's pretty brilliant so quick side tangent when kim c was still in graduate school uh this was before i went to australia i had a bunch of friends who were working with me in the fiction program and everybody was planning to scatter to the four winds for summer and they asked me what i was doing and i said i think i'm just gonna go home and they said well if you change your mind we're all headed to san diego because we're gonna work at camp pendleton and I was like, what? Wow, what are you guys going to do there? And they were going to work with recovering veterans via creative writing. We were going to put on some workshops and basically have a summer writers group where these veterans are there and we were going to talk about fiction and the craft and maybe helping some of this come out through fiction. And uh, they were selling me on it and a lot of them went and had an amazing summer however at the time i was 25 and everyone who went to camp pendleton in my grad program were men and i think i said no because i wasn't ready i was much more delicate then i think now at the age i am and the amount of years of teaching i've had under my belt i could do it but at that time i declined because i wasn't ready to face their darkness because I knew what those gentlemen would write about would be things that I would not be able to unsee, unlearn, unknow, and that's that was hard. That was really hard because I felt I had the opportunity to help and utilize my abilities to celebrate fiction as something that can heal people, but I also felt incredibly ill-equipped. And you know, I was just gonna 
go to it like a happy-go-lucky student teacher and do all my fun fiction exercises and my writing prompts and try and have fun with it but the way that my colleagues had put it is these were people that were in deep pain they were in severe pain and emotional distress and it was all bottled up and locked inside and we were gonna try and put the pen to the page with them and help some of this darkness come out the thing is though as their instructor and as the leader of the writers group you have to read it you have to feel it and be there with them in this memory and help them flesh it out more and i was ill-equipped at the time i was too young i was afraid i was very afraid and i do regret it now because i wish i could do it now and perhaps i still can i think i might even though i know it would still be difficult it would still be hard but i feel i do have the strength to do it now and i think being a fan of king has helped me i really do i think as i've mentioned in some of the other podcast episodes where i've been a guest or sort of exploring the more frightening titles king makes me brave his writing is frightening at times it's unsettling it is dark but yet it's so beautiful and it's so well done and it's masterful in its execution i stay reading it i stay with the book in front of my eyes till the wee hours of the morning and oftentimes i'm rereading it again and again and again i'm staying in that terror-filled place because i am in awe of what he has been able to build And so I feel being a lover of King's writing, I'm stronger than I was at the age of 25. And if you're paying attention to the timeline, 26 was when I read my first Stephen King novella collection, Full Dark No Stars. 26, that was it. So yeah, I mean, everything happens for a reason. And maybe in time, I will be able to remedy the past path I didn't take and head over to a military base and work with veterans. I think I have the strength to do it now from being a King fan. So something to think about. It's in the stew pot. I didn't mean for that to be such a long tangent, but this was a very emotional book. So there you go. As we transition, I do have one last category I want to talk about to round out our strengths category. So the last one is structure and pacing. All right, everyone. So one of the things that pretty much blew me away, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, so tread carefully. So in regards to the structure of this novel, when you read the dust cover or any sort of summary, basically it talks about what I mentioned previously. Billy is a sniper, he's in a criminal situation, he only kills bad people. What I didn't realize is that everything I thought the novel was going to be about, all wrapped up in a bow, the whole plot, the whole potential pitfalls and schemes, all of that was pretty much concluded in the first quarter of the book. I kid you not, everyone. I was shocked. I was shocked that everything I thought was going to drag on and on and on was pretty much wrapped up in the first 150 pages, maybe the first 200 pages. And then after that, it was a complete 180 left turn where all of a sudden this book about snipers and crime and the criminal underworld and being a mercenary suddenly became a novel about 
war and reflection and discovering a talent for composing nonfiction of writing to connect with memory and then it developed into a love story and so the structure of this was wonderful <laughs> because it managed to have me completely guessing what's next and i know that has a lot to do with plot but the fact that king completely chops off all of your premonitions all of your guesswork all of that gets put in a drawer by the middle of the book and the rest is really fantastic plotting that you have no idea where it's going once we get to the middle of the novel everything that you thought the novel would be about is now done and King has shelved it and locked it in a drawer and you're in a whole new world now. You are in an entirely different territory when the character of Alice Maxwell enters the frame. Oh my gosh, yes you are. The plotting is so tight, ladies and gentlemen, and the pacing is even tighter. So before we go, I did want to read one last passage celebrating this incredible work. I want you to listen to how tight and clipped King is writing. He wastes no time. He does not stick around with elegant puffery. It is snap, snap, snap. Let's go. Let's go. Tight plot and pacing. It is fantastic to be a part of. I think that's why it's so engaging because it moves, moves, moves. So let's head over back to my American hardcover and we are going to page 267 and I just want you to listen to how quick he is with the plot and the pacing. Here we go. Alice goes into the bathroom to put on a pair of the new underpants but stays in the shin-length t-shirt because her skirt is still damp. Denim takes forever to dry, she says. She takes the pill with water from the kitchen tap. He tells her the side effects may include vomiting, dizziness. I can read. Who else lives in this building? It's as quiet as the... It's quiet. He tells her about the Jensens and how they went on a cruise, neither of them knowing that in another six months the cruise lines will be shut down along with just about everything else. He takes her upstairs. She comes willingly enough and introduces her to Daphne and Walter. You're watering them too much. You want to drown them? No. Give them a couple days off. She pauses. Will you be here for a couple days? Yes, it's safer to wait. She looks around the Jensen's kitchen and the living room, sizing it up the way that women do. Then she astounds him by asking if she can stay with him. Maybe stay in the basement apartment even after he's gone. I don't want to go out until the bruises get better, she says. I look like I was in a car accident. Also, what if Trip comes looking for me? He knows where I go to school, and he knows where I live. Billy thinks that Trip and his friends will want nothing more to do with her now that they've had their fun. Oh, they might cruise Pearson Street to make sure the place where they threw her out isn't a crime scene, and when they sober up, or come down from whatever high they were riding, they will surely check the local news to make sure she's not a part of it, but he doesn't point these things out. Having her stay solves a lot of problems. Back downstairs, she says she's tired and asks if she could take a nap in his bed. Billy tells her that would be fine unless she's feeling dizzy or nauseated. If she is, it would be better for her to stay awake for a while. She says she's okay and goes into the bedroom. She's doing a good job of pretending she's not afraid of him, but Billy is pretty sure she still is. She'd be crazy if she wasn't. But she's also still in shock, still humiliated by what has happened to her, and ashamed. He told her she didn't have to be, but that bounced right off. Later on, she'll undoubtedly decide that asking to stay with him was a bad call. Really bad. But right now, all she wants is sleep. 
It's in her slumped shoulders and shuffling bare feet. Billy hears the creak of bed springs. He looks in five minutes later and she's either zonked out or doing a world-class acting job. He boots up his laptop and goes to where he left off. You can't write today, he thinks. Not with everything that's going on. Not with that girl in the other room, the one who may wake up and decide she wants to get the hell away from here and me. Only he's also thinking about Pill's wet watchcloth treatment for panic attacks and how it worked for Alice. Sort of a miracle, really. But that wasn't Clay Briggs's only miracle cure, was it? Smiling, Billy begins to write. The prose seems flat at first, ragged, but then he starts to get the rhythm. Soon he's not thinking of Alice at all. Oh my goodness, everyone. So, <sighs> plotting, pacing, narrative style, that third-person omniscient, it's just so good. It's tight and quick, it's no-nonsense, and it moves the story so well. And I think that's what's so surprising, is the style in which he's writing, the plotting and pacing, it all falls in line so great because you... you you're carried. It's moving quick, so you you don't have a lot of time. You gotta keep, you gotta follow along. And he doesn't have to drag you. You're walking at a very brisk pace with this man, and you can't stop because you gotta know what's gonna happen. It's compelling. It's, I need you all to read it, and we need to talk about it in greater detail. And we're going to, in our next section, Usually, I title our character explorations as heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, but everybody's complex and blurred lines and gray areas, so everybody's a little bit of all of that. We're going to explore the immense and incredible strength of character. Let's recap all the things that I loved about Billy Summers. Number one, channeling the masculine classics, specifically On the Road by Jack Kerouac and The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Number two, we have plot and pacing and maybe a little bit of structure, but absolutely plot and pacing. And number three, leading us into our next section, characters. Oh my god, the strength of these characters, everyone. I can't believe it. Let's head there now. I will see you in the next section. Cuddle up, Marines. Welcome to the character section of Billy Summers. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited, guys. We have such a wonderful assortment of characters within this novel. There are four in our spotlight today. One of them is going to have a significant spotlight, and that is Billy Summers, also known as David Lockridge, also known as Dalton Smith. 
We have a couple aliases for Billy in this novel based on the tasks he is assigned and when the plan is in motion. There are only one or two moments where I was a little confused as to who he was pretending to be at a given time, but it all works out, I promise. But what I want to first mention in regards to Billy is how attractive he is, everyone. Oh my gosh. So I think I have a little crush on him. I really do. He is really ticking a lot of boxes for me in what I find personally attractive in the opposite sex. But also, I'm just fascinated by him. King is really playing with an old school playbook here. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. I don't know if I've ever felt this particular way about a main Stephen King lead. It's been a while. I think the the last one who I adored analyzing to pieces was Edgar Fremantle from Duma Key. I'm also incredibly obsessed with Jamie Morton from Revival, Devin Jones from Joyland. You guys know my favorites. Like, those are the guys that really blow my dress up. Those are my favorites, but Billy... Billy has taken the top spot, everybody, and I will explain why. So as I was making my way through Billy Summers and collecting data and really holding him in my mind's eye, I realized that King has made a Byronic hero. He is an antagonist, the anti-hero for sure, but we gotta mention one of my favorite archetypes in literature, the Byronic hero. You guys know Byronic heroes based on a lot of film and television. I'm going to talk about what they are and the two types, but really quick, we're going to segue into literature class for just a hot second. Byronic hero is from Lord Byron, who was a 19th century creative writer, scandalous, infamous person in society who had a lot of emotional encounters with women and they ended up writing books about him, fictionalizing him, and to everyone's surprise, that kind of character, this man who is consistently brooding and self-obsessed and sad, but yet sexy and yearning for love and connection, uh, that's old books. And other 19th century authors really picked up on that. The Bronte sisters, they all sort of scoop that up, and that's why we have such compelling protagonists such as Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, love him or hate him, he is what he is, Edmund Dantes from The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas, but to bring it into a current lens, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne most definitely is a Byronic hero, as is James Bond. So we have two types. The gothic type we see in, of course, gothic novels and films. The gothic, as a refresher for everybody, is the combination of horror and romance, isolated setting, secrets, and the Byronic gothic hero is usually tormented by the past. Something happened that completely warped him forevermore. It's usually a very complex emotional backstory, but the reader typically has great empathy for this character. Bruce Wayne is the perfect example that embodies the gothic Byronic hero. For those of you DC fans out there, you know that Bruce Wayne's parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne, were murdered right in front of him when he was just a young boy. 
The murder completely changed him forevermore, and he becomes a vengeance-seeking vigilante, the Dark Knight, that dwells in the shadows of Gotham City, seeking justice and punishing the guilty. But yet, he doesn't kill. That's Batman's only code. He doesn't kill. Depends on what comic book verse you're reading out of, but he doesn't kill for the most part. And the reader, of course, justifies all of Batman's violence because we know his complicated backstory and the reason why he does what he does. The same goes for James Bond. I haven't read Ian Fleming's novels, but I do know James has some tragedy in his past. This is touched upon in the 2012 James Bond film Skyfall, one of the best, Daniel Craig's best in my opinion. So the gothic Byronic hero. Really quick, we also have the romantic Byronic hero. They're super similar, there's just a little bit of difference. The Byronic romantic hero is a solitary figure, craves isolation. They are completely happy being a bridge troll in their castle. Think of the beast from Beauty and the Beast, they really are quite fine in the shadows. They don't want to come out into society. They're usually pulled out into society by love or attraction or something is pulling them out that allures them, but they themselves are incredibly alluring. This is going to be all of your vampires. All the vampires who have ever been sad about being a vampire. Think of Louis and Lestat from Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire. Any vampire that's ever been forlorn or morose. I also think that Rochester from Jane Eyre, as well as Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, these are the hot guys, right? We love them because they're just brooding. They want to stay alone in their castle. Leave me alone to be sad and brooding. But of course, they see someone who attracts them and they are pulled out into society. The Byronic hero is amazing, guys. I love this so much in literature. When you learn about Lord Byron and what a controversial, perplexing figure he was, it all makes a lot of sense, but scholars distill the Byronic hero as both the villain and the victim. They are the dark angels bringing love and death. They yearn for redemption, but often find none. I feel Billy Summers rides both the gothic and the romantic. I don't know if he's as brooding as Byronic heroes tend to be, but he is a lone wolf. Although he is associated with some criminal brethren, he really is on his own. I think that he did establish a brotherhood when he was a marine and discovered his skill as a sniper, but after he got out, he was on his own and made his own way without seeking a wife, without having a family, and by the time we encounter him in the novel, he's approximately 44 years old, 42 to 44. He is content with being alone. And I know that there are certain types out there that can absolutely enjoy companionship and love and romance, but do they need it? 
No, they don't. If you are somebody who plugs in with the Myers-Briggs personality types, these are your INTJs and your INTPs. Another two who I have big crushes on because they completely suit my ENFP nature, my exact opposite. The quiet, mysterious one in the corner, that's who Kim C is going to talk to at the party. <laughs> but Billy Summers is definitely somebody who I would have sought out at the bar, just saying. The other aspect that I love about Billy Summers, and this is so, so cool, in addition to him being the Byronic hero archetype, he is a Sigma male, another one of my favorites. So as you guys know, with animal hierarchy, we've got the alpha, right? They're the leader of the pack. They're typically the strongest, the best, the fittest, the smartest. Something of theirs makes them incredible leaders to where others will follow. And this could be physical strength, mental strength. It could be a host of things, but that is the alpha. The beta, of course, the opposite of this. Someone who the pack pretty much wants to leave behind. They're just weak and not as strong. But what I love, another huge sort of area of crush of mine is the Sigma males. The Sigma males, for a quick definition for anyone who's not familiar, a Sigma male is someone who is popular, successful, but highly independent and a self-reliant man. So alphas need the approval of the pack. They need the other eyes on them, right? Alphas do everything they can do to show I am the best. Not always, not always, but in a setting where men can size each other up, women as well, in an opportunity where one can demonstrate their strength, the alpha is going to do that. They're going to let their presence be known. It's going to speak loud. The sigma, specifically the sigma male that we're talking about, they don't care. They don't care about any of that. They don't care about any box or mold or any area of approval or societal respect. They don't care. They really are content using their mind, acquiring money on their own, going their own path. And the opinion of others doesn't phase them in the slightest. This is your Elon Musk's. Elon Musk is a Sigma. There's a couple other ones out there where they just blaze their own trail, they don't care what anyone thinks, and all the things that society cares about, they absolutely don't. So Sigmas are another favorite of mine, and Billy is totally that. And we see Billy as a Sigma male because he does something amazing in this book, guys. Billy hides his intelligence. As soon as the novel kicks off, informs the reader that he is very scholarly, very academic, analytical, he likes to read, he likes to think, he likes to use his mind, and yet, with his criminal associates, he only shows himself to read Archie comics, to be very go-with-the-flow, a very limited vocabulary, someone who's just slightly happy-go-lucky, and that's who he wants to demonstrate to the people he's associating with. We learn later on in the novel that that started in his military career, when he was in that brotherhood with his marine friends, where it's a lot of men sizing each other up, especially for military ranking. My gosh, the whole thing is, I mean, you guys know, any sort of masculine arena such as the military is going to be nothing but trying to prove yourself and trying to be alpha and 
demonstrate strength and capability in whatever way you can, but Billy decides to hide it. And it's fascinating because I think only a Sigma would do that. Only a Sigma male would use their brain to see that it's more advantageous to have the upper hand, to have the ace up the sleeve, to keep someone guessing as a way to have an advantage. And Billy does this, right? He doesn't go the alpha route to show how smart he is, to state his credentials and demonstrate what a great shot he is. No. That's not what he does at all. And this extends into his underground career as an assassin. He holds on and keeps what he holds dear very private. His thoughts, his mind, the way he looks at the world, all of that belongs to him and him alone. And that's what's fascinating about Billy, guys. He is such a wonderful case study. He is not the alpha that we see in contemporary military tales. He is a sigma. And I think King writes a lot of sigmas. I just don't know if we recognize them as often as we should. But Billy is so attractive, guys. He's so attractive, I feel, to both males and females. I have a crush on him for all of those qualities that I mentioned, but I think men really respect or can really respect Billy for being in such control of his emotions and his public revealings. It's as if you get really upset and you really want to let someone have it and let all the F-bombs just fly, but you say nothing and you don't let them see you sweat and you don't allow them to know they've ruffled your feathers suddenly you have the upper hand they don't know what makes you tick they don't know how to upset you how to get a rise out of you you have the advantage billy does this with everything and it's awesome he's secretive and private and a total byronic hero and all of this blossoms in full bloom With our next character, when she comes into the picture, Billy reveals more of his wonderful character, which is someone who doesn't need love, doesn't need companionship or connection, but would like it and maybe doesn't slam the door on it when it arrives and comes knocking. That next character is 21-year-old Alice Maxwell. So Alice is another fascinating gal, my friends. Oh my gosh. So Alice is 21 years old. She is from Rhode Island and she is in the town of Red Bluff, which I forget where this is at. It's in the South. It's either Alabama or Mississippi. Please forgive me. I lapsed on where the first half of the novel takes place. I just know it's in the South and I think it's one of those two states. That is my monetary bet, either Alabama or Mississippi. She is here for business school working as a barista and a terrible thing happens to her guys she is betrayed by a man who she trusted and had a crush on and she is i don't want to reveal too much of what happens to alice but it is a terrible crime it is a terrible crime it involves sexual violence watch out for you survivors out there it is very triggering alice is tossed out in the street like garbage in the rain and billy takes her in saves her life and they sort of are forced to be together due to circumstances and fate what i love about alice though if you guys jump back to my full dark no stars exploration i discuss the novella big driver 
with the main character of Tess. Tess is a novelist who has a flat tire at a rest stop in the middle of nowhere, rural Maine, and she is attacked and brutally raped and left for dead. So what I discuss in the Big Driver episode is the notion of hypothetical death, and this is a theory that I am entertaining when it comes to some of the Stephen King females who have a terrible occurrence of victimization. And what I believe happens is when they kind of almost die, it resets their entire identity to base level. They're basically at factory settings. They don't know who they are anymore, and they're really like a newborn, like a thrashing, terrified newborn, because the woman who they were before the crime they are no longer that person anymore. They hypothetically died. That's what happened to the character of Tess, and I think that's what happens to the character of Alice. She is very young to begin with. She doesn't really have a lot of time and experience under her belt, but what I like about Alice is because of this victimization and this hypothetical death, when she wakes up and sees all the damage on her physical body, she doesn't have any memory of what happened to her, other than some of the things that Billy has helped her piece together. Alice is a little bit of a blank canvas, right? I think a couple people have criticized that she is really young and maybe there's not a lot to her. We'll talk about that more in the criticism section, but I think it works perfectly. I think she is a little bit of a blank canvas and that works to the advantage of the story. I think if she was much older and incredibly defined and had a career and I mean it could work, King could spin it any way he wanted to, but I think given the story King wanted to tell with a young woman who is rescued by this anti-hero who saves her life even though in theory when you read this novel he probably shouldn't have time and fate and circumstance and his benevolent nature, right? We do realize that Billy is a good person, quotes, sort of, kind of, he is, he does have a soul, he does have a heart, he saves her life, he maybe shouldn't have, but thankfully he does, and we love it because this is an amazing story, but Alice is I hesitate to say the word flat. I don't think she's flat, but I think she's a perfect blank canvas. And the ending really gives her an opportunity to step into her own story and power. But when we meet her, she's very young. Her father is dead. She has a mother who they have a very distant relationship to the point where it seems like they're not even really in touch. And she really wouldn't care much about Alice being in this situation. She's not a helicopter parent who calls her every day day. She has an older sister. Alice doesn't seem to be in touch with anybody. She just kind of seems like a blank canvas person, and she's new in town. She's just a student, and then after the crime, it's all erased, and she's at ground zero. She's at ground zero of pure survival. She's with this man. He saved her life. She also finds out that he's in a bad, sticky spot, and they're kind of forced to stay together. What ends up happening in the wonderful plot of this novel is they get some time together. They get to stay together and hunker down, and Billy allows her a safe space to heal. He is kind and patient and gives her a lot of room and grace and kindness, most of all kindness, to 
recover with a warm bed and clean clothes and food and limited questions. He's there to listen if she wants or he's there to talk if she wants. And he also goes after the guys who harmed her. So he's definitely a knight in shining armor in that way, even though that wasn't necessarily Alice's request. I think she's honored by the fact that he wants to kind of avenge her. He wants to provide a little bit of justice for Alice. They start having these wonderful moments over and over again, dear listener, and King strings them along like these little beads on a bracelet, one after the other, after the other, after the other. These tiny moments where there is kindness and consideration and space for them both to heal. She reads his story, they start to become friends, and pretty soon, Alice is in love with them. We're going to talk more about this in the criticism section. We will break it down further, but regarding the character of Alice, she is young, she is wounded, afraid, But with Billy, she starts to come out of the dark and embrace an entirely new life because remember, she hypothetically died, right? She encountered this crime, she's been reset to base level, and now she's open to a whole new adventure. And anybody who is bestowing generosity and kindness, she's going to grab that hand very tightly. And that's what she does with the character of Billy. I really like Alice. I think she is exactly what the character of Billy Summers needs. He is our star, so I'm not looking for Alice to steal the spotlight and kind of be this female with a lot of amazing character development. It's okay that she doesn't have as much as Billy because she's been reset to factory settings, right? The crime has put her at the beginning, starting completely over. It makes perfect sense that King puts her exactly where she's at because she is incredibly useful for Billy's awakening and Billy's development and this amazing story to uh, make me sob my face off at the end. That is the character of Alice Maxwell. I really, really liked her. And I feel Alice and Billy have a very unique, compelling love story. However, I hesitate to even use the word love story. I don't know if we can apply that. There is love between them though, and it is very deep and genuine and It's got friendship attached to it. It has sort of the hero-heroine, the victim and victor. It's got a lot of good stuff attached to it. It's complex. It's not unrequited. And that's what makes me so happy is there is genuine love and care between the two of them, despite the large age difference. More on that later. Yeah, the character of Alice Maxwell. She's a diamond. Let us transition to my other favorite character, and that is Bucky Hansen. Bucky Hansen is our sidekick. He is someone who pops up later on in the story once Alice and Billy are kind of stuck together in this very sticky peanut butter and jelly sandwich that kind of got out of hand for both of them, but they're together. And Bucky Hansen is someone who is an associate of Billy's inside the criminal underworld. He sets him up. They talk about money, logistics, planning, people's names, they've got burner phones, this is the guy. But Bucky Hansen lives in Sidewinder, Colorado. Yes, he does. So a wonderful portion of the novel is spent traveling out to Bucky, who is a mysterious character, but he seems just like a 
a country western kind of guy, but also very private. Um, he's someone who lived in New York for a long time, is what we learned about him, and I think he also was in the service, and then he's another Sigma male where they just go their own route and they find their own way, and that's what they do. There is later on an assumption that Bucky might be gay, which it, he might be. It, it definitely works. It's definitely applicable. But he's a warm person who embraces both Alice and Billy. And he's definitely an oasis in the desert kind of character. I also thought of the character Billy Freeman from Dr. Sleep. If you remember that guy, he is Danny Torrance's sidekick buddy in New Hampshire. He's really friendly and willing to help wherever he can, and he drives out to Sidewinder with Danny and Abra, and he's just a go-with-the-flow kind of guy. I thought of Billy Freeman. I know there's a lot of similar names in the King universe, but Billy Freeman from Dr. Sleep definitely reminds me of Bucky Hansen inside Billy Summers. Really delightful. There's not a lot of things I don't like about Bucky. There's a lot of secrets that I wish I knew more about, but I'm happy that he is a presence that Alice and Billy get to seek out when the temperature gets turned up a little bit in terms of conflict. Bucky is a huge respite for both of them, so I really like him. I really, really like that character a lot. I'm excited when he's on the page. He's a gem. The last character I want to mention in this exploration is Nick Majerian. Nick Majerian is said to be Albanian. We don't know for sure, but he's he seems like a Guido. Pardon that phrase, but he seems like a, a wise guy of the Italian mobster persuasion. He is the guy with lots of associates under him. It is very Italian mafia, although it could be another nationality for sure. It could be the Balkan mafia or Russian slash Albanian. It could be. We're not led to assume it's that. It seems very Italian in nature. It seems very set of Sopranos. But Nick Majerian is an older guy who sets Billy up with this first mercenary assignment. He tells him, hey, here's the plan. You're going to hide out here for a couple months. You're going to pretend to be a novelist. Here's your fake name. We're going to check in on you. Just relax and have fun for a couple months, and then we'll ping you when we are ready for it to go down. He is seemingly nice. Of course, there's always things to be suspicious about, but what I like about Nick Majerian is he does have a really redeeming character arc just a little bit. Toward the second half of the novel, when stuff really starts to heat up with plot and conflict, and definitely wants to have a conversation with Nick Majerian face-to-face, and when he finally gets that moment, a lot of surprising stuff happens. I was very pleased with this as the reader, and I was pleased with how Nick Majerian exits the novel. I was, I was surprised. I do like this character. I always love a crime boss, and he's definitely, he definitely ticks the boxes of a conventional crime boss, somebody who seemingly has a lot of power and influence and connections. He is definitely all of those things, but there's a wonderful sort of cathartic moment that Billy gets to witness in him at the end, and it changes everything, and I really, really liked it. So, 
those are the four ladies and gentlemen. As I mentioned, there are lots of gems inside Billy Summers that make a big impact as the story progresses, but my favorite four, of course, are Nick Majerian, our crime boss, Bucky Hansen, our sidekick, Alice Maxwell, our heroine. She is not a wilting flower, but she is definitely our damsel in distress who gains immense strength and really surprises me at the end of this novel. And of course, my super duper literary crush of the moment, Byronic hero, Sigma male, Billy Summers. Oh my gosh, I'm smitten. That's all I have for the character section, everyone. Let's take a mini breather and I will see everybody in our criticisms, final thoughts, and questions segment. I'll see you there. listeners let us have one final gathering where we discuss our final thoughts criticisms and any questions regarding 2021's billy summers i totally am in love with this novel i really really am of course the film rights have already been doled out i am not sure who is attached to it i don't have any names for a writer director but i'm hoping they stay as close to the story as possible because i really think it can be done this story is pretty much devoid of anything paranormal This is King with his crime hat on, but he really stays true to that. There are one or two delightful Easter eggs toward the latter half of the novel, specifically regarding that old hotel that just won't die, the Overlook, of course, found in Sidewinder, Colorado, and some certain hedge animals that might have been preserved in a photo or two, so that's a lot of fun. But the one minor criticism I have, and I really, really hunted and tried to be as objective as possible with this novel regarding criticisms, and maybe as time goes on, I might have one or two more, but the only thing, and it's so minor, it's so minor, it's almost not even worth discussing, but we'll put it out there. The one criticism I have is one that I talk about with my students quite often, and that's called info dumping. So oftentimes with my students, especially the ones who are inclined to a sci-fi or fantasy piece, they have been cooking up all of these amazing ideas regarding a world, a town, a kingdom, whatever it is, and they just want to let it all out all at once. They want to tell me all the lineage, they want to explain how the society (laughs) is mutated, and they want to go pages and pages with all of this empirical data that has to do with their world building. The thing is, it gets dumped on the reader. It's very much like a huge deluge the lesson is one has to dole it out in little bites so it's not overwhelming. I think King has an info dumping section here in the novel toward the end where both Alice and Billy 
truly learn the mastermind behind the curtain. There is a trap door to what they thought the bad guy slash ultimate answer to the riddle is. And when they find that out, or rather when Billy finds it out, he explains it to Alice in the car as they're driving. And it's just a big info dump. It's huge. The character who actually is the real culprit, the culprit of them all, we have never heard of this person at all throughout the entire novel. And so he pops up at the very, very end and we connect the dots in a rather large info dump. And so I I noticed it right away because I, I thought to myself, oh man, like we're just, here's all the info. We have all the answers. That's it. And it just reminded me that even crime thrillers are challenging for King and thrillers are difficult in general. They, they are and they do have a kind of formula to them where the reader as well as the main players find out what the answer is. It's a puzzle. The entire story is a puzzle and of course regarding Billy Summers, there is a reason why he was given a certain mission and it was to be betrayed. There was a reason somebody wanted to take Billy out of the equation and then we connect the dots, but it's just done in a way that's very much a deluge. It's a huge downpour of info and all of a sudden the reader knows all the secrets. And so, like I mentioned, this is minor because I think to myself, how would I have done it? How would I have done it? And King does give tiny little morsels of clues throughout the novel, but there's just no way in heck that the reader would have ever held those in their mind going throughout the story. So a part of me wishes that there would have been more sprinkling throughout, so that way the info dump doesn't come as such a out of left field with info and new data. It's challenging though because King is really focusing on the beautiful story that belongs to Billy and to Alice. Billy of course is finding himself through writing the story of his life. He didn't plan on doing that, he kind of stumbled into it by accident. But that really guides the narrative, is the reader is connecting to Billy through these memories of his life. Then there's this side story of the character of Alice, who he rescued, who he is protecting. She wants to stay with him. It is a little bit of a complex situation where she's kind of forced to stay with him, but she doesn't try to run away. And there's something to that that we'll talk more about here in just a little bit. But the info dumping portion is the only thing, that's the only thing that I would remedy just a little bit. However, I really don't know how else he could have done it. It makes sense. It works for the story. Once you find out who the real bad guy is, then you're, you're on board. You're on board for the last chunk of the book, the last pursuit, the last face-off. You get it. You're on board and you understand why the chips fell as they did. It makes a lot of sense. I just wish we would have had more little clues that we could have latched on to throughout the story, just a little bit, so it's not all revealed at once, but that's the only thing I could think of. The other criticism, and I won't even call this a criticism, I'm just going to put it out there. I think we have a really wonderful love story here, guys. However, it's complex. 
So the reasons why this love story between Alice and Billy are complex are, one, there's a pretty significant age difference. Some people are really turned off by that. I am not. You see that all the time in gothic fiction and I'm not I'm not opposed to it. Also, if you've dated someone older before, it <laughs> it's something I'm just personally into. So, I have no qualms about it. Some people are instantly turned off and they think it's really inappropriate/perverted. I don't think that's the case. The only th- reason I do believe it might be an issue in this story is because Alice is incredibly vulnerable. She is in the healing process from a very violent rape, and in her warped kind of healing, it is a little Stockholm-y. Stockholm Syndrome, of course, is the disorder that's been cataloged since the 70s, where There was some bank robbers in Stockholm, Sweden that remained. Uh, They negotiated for almost like five to seven weeks. And when they got out and all was resolved, the hostages had an immense emotional connection to those bank robbers and cared for them, were really, really involved in their well-being, and there was a very complicated bond. King actually uses the term Stockholm Syndrome in this novel, and so he kind of makes the reader a little bit aware of like, she's only staying with you because she kind of has to, because she knows his secret, but there is a little bit of admiration there and some attraction. and. Alice actually offers herself sexually to Billy once or twice. And this is where it gets complicated because Billy knows she's just kind of still scrambled. She's feeling a lot of things and he declines both times. But they do have these lingering hugs and there's a kiss or two and there's this beautiful moment where Alice looks right in his eyes and just says, I love you. And he says, I love you too. And it works. It's genuine, guys. And you know me, I'm a sucker for romance. Well-written romance, let us preface. Well-written, well-done, genuine romance on the page. It just fills me with life. I love it. So I, my heart had wings with this one, guys. And I actually wish I'm calming down a little bit more now, but I actually wish there would have been more physical romance between the two of them because that's how into it I was. And I felt that, hey, you know, this is Alice's choice. It's her choice to want to be physical with Billy, but King did the right thing by not allowing anything else to transpire between them other than a hug and a kiss because it's not right for Alice to be put in that complex situation with her body. She is still healing. She's still scrambled. She is very young and vulnerable. I really like that it isn't consummated, even though during my readership, I was I was hankering. I wanted them to hook up really bad. But in retrospect, I realize King was incredibly smart by denying this. It makes it so much more powerful. I think that's why the ending is so tragic. There is genuine love between these two characters and we get to a point where you could envision them having a life together. You could envision them having a future and being in each other's lives, but it is, it's doomed. It really is. And the 
character of Bucky often has to remind Billy, listen, she's a bird and you're a fish. There's no place where you guys can shack up. This is not gonna work. You are who you are. You chose this underground life. She is a sweet angel and you will destroy her life in this terrible criminal world that you're involved in and you're in deeper than you've ever been before. She's gonna follow you like a little doggy to the ends of the earth you can't let her do that. It's just beautiful, guys. It's just beautiful and heartfelt, and I think all the choices that Billy makes for Alice are genuinely for her well-being, even though he is tempted and he feels an immense amount of attraction for her, and I am into it, guys. I feel this is a genuine love story, and I think as time will tell, I, I hope it gets mentioned with, with the King love stories. I think it has the chops, although it's very different. It's not the traditional love story from some of the pairings we have that pop up in King novels. It's different. It's very different, and I love it, and it, oh, I'm still thinking about them. I'm still thinking about all of it, but the criticism is, I guess, looking at this bond between these two people, there is evidence that it is an inappropriate bond based on Alice's vulnerability, her, the time frame that this is all happening is just a crappy one in terms of a romantic connection. She is a survivor of something terrible and she's probably not in the best mindset to be feeling these things. She's terrifically confused. Not saying her feelings aren't genuine, they are, but <laughs> it's a lot, right? She is still covered in bruises and, and physical wounds from this ordeal, but yet she's so grateful to Billy for protecting her, for being that knight in shining armor for her, that she feels very obligated to please him and... I could understand how some people would be incredibly turned off by this relationship. So I'd like to talk to more readers out there to see what we think. Like, what are the parameters of this relationship? I think it's kind of a hot button one. There is evidence to speak against it, to say this is just inappropriate, this is psychologically manipulating, and it's not a healthy environment for a relationship. It's not. However, it is not really allowed to bloom, and I think that's why it burns so bright for the time that it does, because Billy, of course, spoiler alert, please tread carefully as I say this next sentence, Billy does not survive the novel. I'm not going to say how it happens, but he's not with us at the end, which is incredibly tragic. Billy Summers is a tragic character for sure, and I think that's what makes the ending so painful and so beautiful is the last sort of act is on behalf of Alice, and Alice is kind of forever transformed by her time with Billy. It's kind of reminds me, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but hopefully we've all seen the 1997 film Titanic. If you haven't, please do. It's James Cameron's epic. It's really good. But when I was a teenager, I was so upset that Jack died, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio's character Jack, that he passes away because I I was so sad that they couldn't be together and that was all I focused on. As I got older, I realized what a wonderful gift he gave her by saving her life, by letting her float on that little piece of 
barge or whatever it was, that little scrap of wood. He kept her out of the water and she survived because of him because he understood that she needed to live and have a full life. And that's the same kind of feeling I had with this story regarding Billy. Billy does that for Alice by allowing her to have a lot of his money, if not all of his money, to start a life with. He gives it all to her so she can start fresh, go to school, achieve her dreams, have a full life. And there is no greater gift of love than that, than someone giving you freedom and love and time. And that's why it's so beautiful. I will debate with those who will throw stones at this relationship. I'm ready for them. But I would include how powerful the ending is and why it kind of remedies all of those little hot button issues that some readers might have with this relationship. I'm really into it. I actually wanted more, although I'm incredibly proud of King's decisions. And he actually did this with the novel Bag of Bones, although I don't like talking about that novel, it scarred me very deeply, but there was a 20-year-old young widowed mother in that story, and Mike Enslin? Yeah, Mike Enslin is, I think, late 40s, mid 40s, and they definitely have a romantic connection, but it is not consummated. I think it could have been, but he, he, he holds back, and I'm okay with it. It's a smart move to leave the reader wanting more, and it's smart, and that's exactly what he left me with. So really, really intelligent decision making in regards to these two characters. Beautiful love story. I think it has the chops to bloom in the minds of readers, and I hope that we talk about it in future discussions about king couples. I really would like this couple to stand in that category for sure. All right, my last sort of observation I wanted to bring to everybody's attention, because we are talking about love stories and king couples, I wanted to remind you all about a certain couple from 2011's, I think, I think, 11-22-63. When I mention Jake and Sadie, the reason why I bring them up is I think the entire novel, 11-22-63, is a huge companion piece to Billy Summers. As I was reading Billy Summers, I I got that that little spidey sense tingle where I realized this feels familiar. I feel exactly how I felt with 112263. We do have some really awesome parallels. For example, Jake Epping is our protagonist in 112263. He receives a mission to go back in time and take out Harvey Oswald. He's got to save Kennedy. As he does this, he has to have a cover story, and he is an English teacher in Jody, Texas, and waiting a couple years, building a life, just kind of hiding in plain sight until he gets the opportunity to take Oswald out. Meanwhile, he meets Sadie. He meets Sadie. They fall in love, like super duper romantic love between Jake and Sadie. It is so precious. That is 11 and 2263, right? That's sort of the main threads that King weaves with for that story. And now, here's Billy Summers. Billy Summers gets an assignment to take out 
Joel Allen, a bad guy for XYZ reasons. He has to have a cover story life of a novelist in a small town, Red Bluff, Mississippi slash Alabama. Never quite figured that out. Gotta wait a couple months until Joel Allen makes an appearance outside the courthouse where he could take him out. Meanwhile, he meets Alice. <laughs> and then Alice comes into the frame, although her story is much more complicated than Sadie's, but they do share some similarities as Sadie has a really dangerous ex-husband, not quite so ex-husband. And then of course, Alice was the victim of a terrible, terrible crime. There's a lot of similarities, friends. And I, uh, every person I talk to, every constant reader out there holds 11, 22, 16, very high on their lists, guys. This is a novel that many King readers shoved in the faces of their non-King reading friends, right? It is that powerful. It is that good. I feel Billy Summers can now be that book. I am so eager to talk to so many of my non-King reading friends and put Billy Summers in front of their faces and say, this, this is the one you need to read now. There's nothing paranormal in it. There is no sort of kingy and trapdoor to fall through in regards to a monster, an evil force, an unexplainable phenomena. No, it is just a crime story with some wonderful plot twists throughout, and I just, oh, I'm, I love it. I love it. I love it. And I feel just as strongly with this novel as I do with 112263. This one has shot to the top charts for me, guys. It might be a top five. We're going to hold off on that just a little longer, but 112263 is that powerful of a book. It is Matt Hurt's favorite Stephen King novel, my friend from Tower Junkies. That is his number one Stephen King novel. So the fact that there are so many similarities and the same amount of heartbreaking, wonderful storytelling throughout, I really think that Billy Summers should be the book that we are just sharing with everyone we know. Firstly, make sure you read it. Make sure you read it and experience the beauty and then make sure you loan a friend of yours immediately. It is so, 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 so good. I am just such a fan, guys. I am absolutely in love with this story. Heart and soul. Heart and soul. And those are kind of my final thoughts. I really think that the companion piece to 112263 is completely fitting. I love this love story. I love these characters. I love Billy Summers. My gosh, guys, I cannot stop thinking about him. I am incredibly into this story, and I cannot wait for any sort of adaptation that, that comes our way. It has largely received very positive reviews, which is great. I've even read one quote where it's been called Stephen King's best book in years. That is huge, ladies and gentlemen. That is absolutely huge. I can definitely see why that would be fitting, most assuredly. Oh my gosh. So to take us out, I highly recommend that everybody read Billy sooner rather than later. Let's talk about this love story. What are your thoughts? Let's talk about these characters. I really want to speak more about Billy. This is a novel that really surprised me really, really moved me, and I would love to chat more about it with all of you. Please make sure you head to underratedsk at gmail and let me know your thoughts on Billy Summers. Did you react as strongly as I did? Was there a part that you just didn't really jive with? Let's have more palaver in regards to Billy Summers. 
There is one more thing I did want to mention, only because it's another aspect I can't get out of my mind. I was researching some of the summarized content on Wikipedia and saw something that I can't get out of my brain, and I gotta talk about it before we exit this episode. I, somebody's gotta go on there and fix this, guys. So on Wikipedia, it is mentioned that there is a certain kitchen appliance that is used for sodomy. Let's just say when Billy visits the men who hurt Alice, he decides to take a page out of Lisbeth Salander's playbook, if you remember her from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Larson is the author. That is a brutal book where, oh my gosh, poor Lisbeth, she is terrorized, but she gets some pretty sweet vengeance that involves some sodomy, and Billy heads that same direction with a hand mixer. For all of my bakers and cooks out there, you know what a hand mixer is, right? There are these little metal prongs. It's kind of old school. Your grandmother most likely has one or two or five, but on the Wikipedia article, it is said that Billy utilizes an immersion blender to sodomize these bad guys. No, ladies and gentlemen, no. An immersion blender has blades on the end of it. And yes, it is slightly phallic in nature, but it unless I got it wrong and unless it really was an immersion blender, I could have sworn it was hand mixer because I was pretty horrified that a kitchen appliance was going to be utilized. I mean, I was really happy for the vengeance. That was going to be awesome. But no, everyone, if he used an immersion blender, my God, that would be a bloodbath. That would be a gore fest. Whoa, I would have some nightmares about that. Whoa! So, somebody needs to go in there and fix it. It is not an immersion blender. It's not. It's a hand mixer. Unless, if somebody has the direct quote from the page, please send it to me if I got that wrong. Because if it is an immersion blender, then I'm going to have to digest that. I'm going to have to come to terms with that. And But I... Oh, that, that would be bloody. Woo! So... Yeah, that's how we're going to end this episode. <laughs> Can't wait for you guys to get there. It's a little bit gnarly, but it's also great. So as you guys can tell, I love the hell out of this book. I nerded out hardcore because it just absolutely transported me to another place, which is one of the most priceless feelings that one can get from a King experience. And I'm so incredibly grateful to him for writing this book, but just continuing to write. I just received my brand new hard copy of Fairy Tale in the mail this week. And it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing the age of this man and it's just getting better and better and better. And there's just hope for us all that as you age, it could just be more awesome and like fine wine. So for those of you who haven't said hi yet, please visit the show at underratedsk at gmail to let me know what you think about the programming. Feel free to share any of your thoughts and ideas about past episodes, past novels. All of them are always open for discussion. Please visit us on Instagram and Twitter. Say hello. I have a poll going out on Twitter. It'll probably close at the end of next week. My next novel is going to be one of the four C's. Carrie, Cujo, Christine, or Cell. Which one do you guys want me to read next? At present, Christine is winning. So head over to Twitter at underratedskpod and cast your vote and let me know which of the four C novels you would like me to read next. But I would love to hear from you. Please say hello and stay tuned for the next novel coming up. I should have 
a delightful constant reader interview with a wonderful friend slash listener coming up soon, so stay tuned for that. But thank you guys so much for hanging out with me. Go read Billy Summers if you haven't. Let's talk about it more if you have. And I will see you all very soon. Wherever you are in the world, please take care and we'll chat again soon. Bye-bye.